John chapter 13 is where we're at. Uh, we're not talking about legs, we're talking about feet. Um, so there you go. Who, who actually invented those? Do, can you still get those? Do those still exist? Ice cream fans? Can you imagine the discussion in, is that the Walls ice cream logo? I'm not sure. Can you imagine the discussion one day? You know, we want to create a new product. And they're sitting around the boardroom in, in Walls HQ and trying to decide what, what new product will we make out of ice cream? What would you like to put in your mouth? You know, and somebody pipes up and says, a foot. Let's make ice cream out of, or in the shape of a, of a foot. Anyway, we're, we're talking about feet. Uh, not ice cream feet, but Jesus washing the feet of his disciples. Um, and this is a familiar passage. And I actually feel really nervous. So I'm quite excited that, that I do think God's going to speak uh, if we are listening. Let me read John 13 and verses 1 to 15. It was just before the Passover festival and Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel around his waist, and after that he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, so that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that this event happened and that John was there to write it all down, that your Holy Spirit gave him the ability to remember it. Thank you that we have it. And Lord, I pray as we just ponder it for these minutes this morning, Lord, that you will work in our hearts. I ask, Holy Spirit, that you would work with the word and our faith in our hearts and change us, speak to us, encourage us, challenge us. In Jesus' name. Amen.
Now, a little bit later on in this chapter, uh, we read this verse, verse 23 of chapter 13. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. Or your older versions of the Bible says, the beloved disciple. Now, John wrote John, yeah? The Gospel of John, written by John. And John refers to himself in the Gospel of John as the beloved disciple. That sounds a wee tad arrogant, does it not? You know, I'm the special one, as Jose would say. I'm the, I'm the best of the bunch. But what this term actually meant was he was the one who had the special privilege of writing down, of recording, and of passing on in detail what was going on, and particular this night. He was the one who had unfettered access to Jesus. He was in the inner circle of the three, Peter, James, and John. He was quite young. He's thought to be a relative of Jesus. And we read literally that he was reclining next to Jesus at the table. He was leaning against Jesus. He was the official biographer as such. And whereas when you read the other Gospels, when they describe this meal the night before Jesus died... You get a few paragraphs. With John, you get five chapters. And you get a level of detail about what Jesus said that the others don't give us. So why do feet need washed? Right, ancient world, you don't have nice trainers and you don't have socks. You've got dusty roads in the summertime and you have got muddy roads in the rainy or wet times of the year. And you walked everywhere, so your feet were absolutely clean bogging, as the term goes. Yeah, dirty, smelly feet. You'd pick up all sorts of things. There would be animal dung and everything in the streets, and you would pick this up through your sandals as you walked along the way. And sometimes it's interesting to just also note that for Jews, they picture life as a walk, a journey, a way, not sitting still but progressing, following a path with God. And you can think, I, I reckon as we look at this, you can think about the dirt on the feet of the disciples a bit like the dirt that we all pick up as we go through the journey of life, as we walk through and stuff sticks to us, needs to get washed off. And an important part of hospitality in the ancient world, if you went to somebody's house for dinner, you got your feet washed by a slave when you arrived just to freshen them up. You'd had a bath before you come. You didn't need a whole bath. You just needed your feet washed so you could sit in comfort at the table. So here's some random feet facts for you just to regale you. A few numbers about feet. 26, that would be the number of bones in your feet. 33 joints and over 100 muscles, tendons, and ligaments. 8,000 to 10,000. <laughs> is the number of steps the average person walks each day. 115,000 is the average number of miles that a person will walk in a lifetime. Quarter of a million, that's the number of sweat glands that are in your feet. <laughs> Half a pint then is the amount of sweat that you will produce each day from your feet. Isn't that delicious? You glad you came? Do you want a lolly to, to lick on later on when you think about these stats? 
Um, 8,000 is the number of nerves in your feet. That's why they're so tickly. What else we got? One millimeter per month. That'd be your toenail growth rate. Um, four times. Women are four times more likely than men to experience problems with their feet. It's because they wear daft shoes. Yeah, high heels, pointy toes, all that. So women are four times more likely to have feet problems. Uh, your feet are largest at the end of the day. Um, 2013 <laughs> is the year in which an exhibition took place in Dublin. Had to be Dublin. That displayed a variety of cheeses made with bacteria samples obtained from real people's feet. <laughs> no cheese was eaten. Uh, 5,600, that is the Guinness World Record held by Madeleine Albrecht for the total number of feet sniffed in her career, 15 years working for the Shoal or Skoll or whatever it is, shoe company. So there you go. Feet need washed, right? Half a pint of sweat a day and all that. We need to get our feet cleaned. And the person who washed feet was a slave. You didn't wash your own feet when you arrived at somebody's house. The host did not wash your feet. A slave did it. And Jewish slaves were not required to do it because it was such a lowly, demeaning, dirty task. So it had to be a Gentile, a non-Jewish slave. A, a Jewish slave could be asked to do it, but they could politely decline and say, no, I'm not doing that, and they didn't have to. Now, imagine the atmosphere that night. Jesus is gathering the disciples for this meal. They've borrowed this upper room. They have walked there through the dirty streets. And the disciples all shuffle in and they look around for a servant who will wash their feet, but they don't see any servant. So they sort of politely, maybe slightly awkwardly say nothing and go and take their places at the table. And Jesus would have offered a prayer of thanksgiving and then he gets up and he takes off whatever outer garment he was wearing, puts a towel around his waist and goes and lifts the basin of water. Now this is wrong. <laughs> Teachers don't do this. Your equal does not do this for you. Only a servant, somebody lesser than you in the status line, somebody lower than you does this. Jesus should not be doing this. And you can imagine the silence in the room all you can hear is the sort of splash of the water in the basin and the disciples are looking at each other. And who breaks the silence? Good old Peter. No, <laughs> you're not washing my feet. Because this is the job of someone lesser than me. This is not the job for my Lord and my King. For Jesus to do this, and again, this is one of those stories in the, in the life of Jesus that we know we've heard of again and again to the point that it doesn't impact us anymore. It was astounding. It was staggering. Some of us have got pretty dodgy feet. <laughs> and uh, apparently my feet are terrifying. I think they're quite nice. But uh, Rach, who's not here to defend herself, is, is quite sort of 
terrified of my feet to the point that anytime we're in water, in a lake or in a swimming pool or in the sea, at some stage my feet will randomly appear just in front of her face up out of the water and she goes clean mad. Feet need washed, but they don't get washed by your equal or by your Lord. They get washed by a slave. And whose feet get washed? This is something that I haven't really dwelt on myself that much, I guess, in the past. Because we frequently use this as a picture of something that the church needs to do for the world. Which I completely agree with. The world needs their feet washed. And the church are tasked, I believe, to help wash the dirt off the feet of the world. But Jesus on this occasion washed his disciples' feet. He didn't wash anybody else's feet in any of the rest of the Gospels. This was something that was intimate for the community of faith that was gathered around him on this occasion. And it's worth noting that it is his followers who had their feet washed. What did Jesus know? Because we read in the passage a few times that he knows some stuff. In, in verse 1, it says that Jesus knew the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. He knew that. This night, and probably, you know, you shouldn't elevate, and I don't want to elevate certain portions of Scripture above others, but on this particular night, every second counted. Every word, every act, everything he did counted. Because the the minutes were literally ticking away to his arrest, his trial, his torture, his crucifixion. Every moment mattered. And he knew the, the weight of the hour that he was in. What else did he know? He knew that the Father had put all things under his power. And that he had come from God and was returning to God. Jesus knew exactly who he was. He had no doubts about his identity. He knew he had come from God. He knew he was returning to God. He knew the power that God had given him. And in the next verse you read, So he washed their feet. He knew who he was. In order to serve people like this, Because this act of foot washing is an act of love and it is an act of service. In order to serve people like this, you need to be really secure in your identity in God, in Christ. Because some people, when you wash their feet, they might just get up and walk all over you. (laughs) But it doesn't matter. In order to do this, to love with this degree of complete abandon, You need to be completely secure in who you are. And Jesus knew who he was. And another thing that he knew later on, Jesus knew, verse 11, who was going to betray him. This always impacts me when I think about this passage. He washed Judas' feet. How secure do you have to be in God? To know what Judas is going to do. There is something. You read about David in the Psalms. He reads about his friend lifting up his heel against him. His friend and his trusted counselor turning on him. 
And one of the worst things you could do in Hebrew culture would be to eat with people, to sit at a table with people, and then to betray them. Because the table was such a place of intimacy and welcome and community and family and life. And to go from that context to betraying somebody was unimaginably awful. Jesus knew who was going to betray him. And he still washed his feet. The feet that would then get up, walk out into the darkness, sell Jesus for a few pieces of silver, betray him with a kiss. Jesus still washed those feet because he knew who he was. And we likewise can wash anybody's feet, no matter who they are, what they've done, if we are secure in our own identity in God. Where did it happen? Again, this is something that has sort of impacted me this week. It happened at a table. I think a lot about tables, as you would expect. Um, I can't even go into school and teach my chemistry classes and think about the periodic table without thinking about Jesus. But Jesus did this in the context of a meal. And we talk a lot about tables and we talk a lot about people coming to, to, to table and coming to share life with Jesus and eat the food with Jesus and, and encounter him. And here's another aspect that I think we need to sort of pull into the identity of what it means to be people at the table with Jesus is that we wash one another's feet that we wash the feet of this world. That's the context in which it happened. A place of intimacy and community, a place of love and safety and shared life. That's where Jesus washed the feet of his disciples. What about the response of the disciples after Jesus did this or while he was doing it? Peter, first of all, says, no, you're not doing this. But Jesus' response to him is to say, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. Now, I might get back to this later, and I might not, so I'll mention it now. Jesus effectively says to Peter, Peter, this is who I am, and this is what I do. Take it or leave it. I think one of the things that happens an awful lot regarding Christianity and regarding Jesus is that we just mold him slightly into what we want him to be. Peter had a real problem with Jesus washing his feet. And Jesus says, listen, Peter, this is who I am. Take it or leave it. Unless I wash you, you have no, or I, you have no part with me. Do not take the things about Jesus that you maybe find more difficult to accept and airbrush them away in order to make him what you want him to be. He is who he has revealed himself to be, particularly in the Gospels and throughout the Word of God. Don't change it. This is who I am, Peter. Take it or leave it. But you cannot change it. And Peter's response is brilliant. It is just full of passion and commitment. No matter what mistakes Peter makes along the way, no matter what things he says wrong, and he's still in Galatians, Paul has to take him aside and have some strong words with him. No matter what, the guy is utterly passionate about Jesus. And he says, right, just give me a bath, okay? Not just my feet, but my hands, my head. Wash all of me then. He's completely, he is all in. 
Once he hears that washing, his, his, his being washed means he has a part with Jesus, Simon, say, or Simon Peter says, just do the whole lot. Do the whole lot. That's his response. Judas' response is different. You read a little bit later on in the same chapter after the meal, Judas takes the bread and he goes out and it was night. He walks out into the darkness. You see, Judas cannot stand this atmosphere of love. He can't handle it. A Judas cannot function in a loving community. And the degree of what Jesus has done here and the level of love that he has shown for his disciples causes Judas to just, I can't take this anymore. Judas has had problems all along with Jesus. Judas has had, a, I believe, a picture in his head of what a Messiah should look like. And Jesus just repeatedly does not match up to what Judas wants. And in this atmosphere of love, Judas's heart is finally exposed and he can't stand it. He's got to get out of there. Do you know one of the best ways, I think, to protect a church, a Christian community from a Judas from a divider, a, a, a person who would seek to do harm, if that community is utterly committed to one another in love, Judas will be exposed and will have to go. <laughs> he won't be able to stick it. The atmosphere of love. Judas' response, very different from Peter's response. But what's the required response? You know, as Jesus does this, what does he then say is the required response? Here's verse 14. And like, I haven't put the complete verse up because there's a logical way this verse should end and it doesn't end that way. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, now that I've washed the dirt of the world off your feet, the dirt that you've picked up on the journey of life, the smelly stuff, all the, all the dust and all the sweat... I've washed that off your feet. You now should, and what you're expecting is, wash my feet. <laughs> you're expecting Jesus to say, I've washed your feet. You also should wash mine. But you don't get that. What he says is, now that I've washed your feet, you should wash each other's feet. Do you ever wish Jesus was physically here? <laughs> Do you ever wish you could just lavish on him the love that you want to lavish on him? That you could just fall at his feet like that woman in, in Luke chapter 7 who, who gate crashes the meal and falls at his feet and weeps on his feet and wipes her tears away with her hair. And you're frustrated because you can't express to him the love that you want to express to him. You feel like you owe him one. You don't live like a debtor. You know, you've received the grace of God and it is free, but you feel like you want to reciprocate. You feel like you want to, to just lavish back on Jesus. Here's how you do it. Now that I've washed your feet, you wash each other's feet. A missionary called Leslie Newbigin said, Our neighbor is the appointed agent authorized to receive what we owe to the master. In other words, I can't wash Jesus' feet, but I can wash yours. 
And the way that we respond to the grace of God is to wash one another's feet, to lavish love on each other, on the people of God. That is the required response to having been washed by Jesus. And what's the impact then? When a community serves each other like this. So I want to take this, this foot washing that Jesus has exemplified. I do not have a basin and a towel and I have no intention of physically, literally washing any of your feet. But to take this symbol, when a community loves each other like this. When a community of people serve each other like this. And wash off the dirt from this beautiful but broken world when we wash the dirt off one another's feet whatever we're going through what is the what is the impact jesus says later on in chapter 13 a new command i give you love one another as i have loved you so you must love one another by this everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another by this everyone will know that you're my disciples. By this. By snappy sermons? No. They will not prove that we are Jesus' disciples. By singing really, really, really loud, that will not prove that we are his disciples. By serving really good toast and coffee will not prove that we are his disciples. By having a nice building by advertising, by having a website or social media press, that will not prove to anyone that we are Jesus' disciples. The thing that shows the world that we are the people of God is when they look in and say, that community love each other. They love each other. And therefore, Jesus must be authentic. He must be real. And that's why bickering and squabbling in church is just a hideous, hideous thing to do. It really is. Because Jesus says, this is the thing. When you love one another, the world will have to acknowledge that you follow me. The world will see Jesus whenever his people love each other. Community matters. And you have to understand that in the room that night, there was a great diversity of people. There was a guy there called Matthew, who was a tax collector. So let me just, you know, a synopsis of who Matthew was. Matthew had sold his soul to the Romans. He was a Jewish man. The Romans were ruling at that time. And Matthew was collecting taxes from his Jewish friends and neighbors and giving those taxes to the Romans, to the enemy. So Matthew was a scumbag. He was a rat, collecting money from the Jews, giving it to the Romans. Matthew would have been hated by the Jews because of the way he acted as a traitor to them. On the other side of the table, you've got a guy called Simon who was a zealot. You think zealot, you think paramilitary. You think Simon is a Jewish freedom fighter fighting against the Romans. Simon hates Matthew, <laughs> because Matthew has sold his soul to the Romans. Simon hates the Romans and hates Matthew for what he did. And Jesus says, now wash one another's feet. And you better believe Matthew and Simon's eyes met across the table. Because whenever you see a diversity of different people who love each other, 
who make the choice to love each other in this way, that is undeniable evidence that the Spirit of God is at work. Undeniable. Some of us, we look all sorts of places trying to find evidence or trying to produce evidence for Jesus. The evidence is here. It is in a community that love each other. I was just sitting outside there on, on Thursday night with a couple of young guys and we were talking about the Holy Spirit um, and looking at a whole lot of different things that the Holy Spirit does in, in the Scriptures. And this is one of the verses that I, I mentioned to them. is 1 Corinthians 12, 13. We were all baptized by one Spirit to form one body, whether Jews, Gentiles, slave or free, and we were all given the one Spirit to drink. And I said to the guys, apart from Spirit, what word is in that verse? Quite a lot. And they very quickly said, one. One spirit, one body, one spirit. The point is, where God's spirit is at work, there will be unity. And I said to them, unity is not the same as uniformity. Uniformity is when everybody looks the same. Uniformity is where you've got a room full of people and they are all clones. They're, they're just all the same as each other. That is not really evidence that the Holy Spirit is at work. Evidence that the Spirit is at work is where you've got diversity. All sorts of different people from different backgrounds, but they are united in love and in community. That's evidence that God is at work. And Jesus says, the world will know that you're my disciples when you love each other. So if you want, you know, if you're passionate about the world knowing Jesus, top priority, love each other. It's really simple. Try, I think we're good at that, but let's keep on raising our game on that one. Love each other. I was listening to uh, a guy the other day, he was actually, he was speaking about the Sermon on the Mount and he was talking about a section about marriage and about how marriage counseling now is uh, more in demand than it would have been 50 or 60 years ago. And he said he was talking to his father one day about this and, and why was that the case? And his father said, when I was a young man, not long married, me and my brothers still went fishing every Saturday. And we sat and we talked about our marriages. We counseled one another. We made time for one another and we sat together and loved each other. You understand? If the church would just function really simply the way God calls us to function in loving one another and making time for one another and just sort of turning our backs against the busyness of this world, we would be much healthier people. And the world would see a church that reflects the reality of Jesus. So if we the impact of this community is that the world will know that we are his disciples. Another thing is that not only will the world know that we are Jesus' disciples, the world will see God. Because they see Jesus in how we act to one another, they will see God. One of the theme verses in the Gospel of John is chapter 14, verse 9. Jesus says, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Do you want to know what God is like? I can tell you, cast iron, 100% what God is like. It'll take about two hours this afternoon. Read John from start to finish. And at the end of that, you'll know what God's like. You will know what God's like. Because Jesus says, anyone who has seen me 
has seen the Father. The first thing Jesus does is he goes to a wedding. They've ran out of wine and he turns water into wine. That's what God is like. Judas can't handle that. He then spends an evening with a rich, intelligent, religious man called Nicodemus. He gives him one-to-one attention. He listens to him. He answers his questions. He enters into discussion with him. Just one guy, because that's what God's like. He then sits at a well with a prostitute who has had five husbands and is with a sixth man And he sits with her in the heat of the day and he talks to her about living water. And I can imagine when she gets up from the well to go back and tell her village what he's like, I can imagine him saying to her, listen, darling, that's what God's like. I can imagine him when he pulls that woman out of the dirt. We talked about her a couple of weeks ago, the adulterous woman that was thrown down in the dust at his feet and the the religious guys were going to stone her i can imagine him when he picks her up puts her back in her feet and says i don't condemn you go and leave your life of sin i can imagine him saying you've just seen what god's like you've just seen what god's like this is the guy who can walk on water all creation responds to him it is at his back and call yet he stoops to wash the dirt off his disciples feet because that's what God is like and when we live like this and treat one another like this the world will see God another thing that happens as I mentioned earlier is that hearts are exposed Peter's heart of complete passion for Jesus is exposed in that atmosphere that's a beautiful exposure but Judas's heart is also exposed in that atmosphere And that's an ugly exposure. But when you've got that community of love, there's nowhere to hide. (laughs) If there's darkness in your heart, it'll be exposed and you'll either deal with it or you'll run out into the night. So what does leadership look like? As Jesus, who should not have been doing this, does it? What does leadership look like? In all contexts, I've read a great book lately by this guy called Scott McKnight. The book is called A Church Called Tov. Tov is the Hebrew word for good. And the the tagline there at the, the bottom is forming a goodness culture that resists abuses of power and promotes healing. He writes this book in response to many, many, mainly American churches where there has been abusive leadership, toxic, controlling leadership in churches. And one by one over the last 10 years or so, an awful lot of leaders have fallen and they have fallen very hard, unfortunately. A lot of big churches in in the States require their staff, their elders to sign non-disclosure agreements so that if they ever leave the church, they're legally not allowed to talk about how the church is run. That's really unhealthy. (laughs) But he's written this book against that type of leadership, uh, instead encouraging people to form a culture of, of goodness in churches. What does leadership look like? That's what leadership looks like. The Christian church can be obsessed with leadership sometimes, and I think we need to get more obsessed with serving and get obsessed with that. I read a lot of leadership books. I choose them carefully. 
The best ones are the ones that focus on serving as leadership. Jesus got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water in a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet. That's leadership. That's leadership. Serving people. I was in, a, in work one time. This was about six years ago, I think, five or six years ago. And I was undergoing a hideous thing called a departmental evaluation. <laughs> and I sat as head of department. I sat in the boss's office. And he was there. And another member of the senior leadership team was there. And uh, he said to me, how would you describe your leadership style? Now, I had thought about this in advance. And this is what I said. I read a book about a shepherd who washed people's feet. And that's my model for leadership. And he looked across the room at the other member of senior leadership that was there and then looked back at me and just immediately went on to the next question. It was brilliant. This is our model for how we lead. I don't lead that many people. I have a small department. But I try to wash the feet of my staff. I pick up the pieces when they need me to. I cover and teach extra classes because they maybe need to get home to a sick child or whatever. Simple attitude. Leadership looks like service, serving people. If you are in a position in work or anywhere else where you have people who are under your authority, do you wash their feet? Do you serve them? Do they sometimes go away from interactions with you thinking, he could have just barked an order at me. He could have, or she could have spoken to me and gave a command and made me do something. But she just served me. He actually just served me. <laughs> the end result is the same, but the way it was done, completely different. Let me finish by saying that community is non-negotiable. Creating this atmosphere of loving service is non-negotiable. John was really affected by this and whenever he went on in later years to write a letter that we have called 1 John, he says, Dear friends, since God loved us, we also ought to love, not God, but one another. Now obviously we love God. But the response to receiving God's love is to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us. And his love is made complete in us. Now, I want you to really shake yourself. If you've had a wee snooze for five or ten minutes, wake up. I'm nearly done. Mm -hmm. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. Flip side of that, if we don't love one another, then God's love is not made complete in us. Now, this is really, really important. If we create an atmosphere of foot washing, helping one another to just... Foot washing takes time. It's a bit dirty. It's not glamorous. But if we create this, this community of serving and loving one another... God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. And if we don't, then it's not. So this quote is by me. <laughs> Unless you give yourself fully 
to Christian community, your intimacy with Jesus will be limited. If you just tag along on the fringes, you will not fully experience the intimacy with Jesus that you could otherwise experience. Because see, in the context of this foot washing, it set him up for about four and a half chapters of just pouring his heart out to those 11 remaining disciples. Nobody else heard it. Judas couldn't stick it. And it's only in that atmosphere of loving and serving one another that we really do have the love of God made complete within us. And some people are fearful of Christian community. They're fearful. What if I get hurt? What if it goes wrong? You have to commit to Christian community or you will not have a full relationship with Jesus Christ. That is not, definitely not, to try to give the church control over people. That that statement is not to be abused or to be misunderstood. It is biblical to say that if we don't love one another, God's love will not be made complete in us. So I would say you cannot know Jesus without committed, loving Christian community. You can't. And I would also say the world cannot know Jesus with a committed, loving Christian community. So if you want to know Jesus, you commit to community. And if you want the world to know Jesus, you commit to community and the world will see it. Jesus, in this, shows the cross. If you read through, you'll see this. You can do it later on if you want. You'll see that Jesus got up Early on, round about verse 4, he got up. You see him laying aside the garments that he's wearing. And you see him wrapping himself in different garments. You then see him pouring out. And you see him washing. And when he's finished washing, he puts his garments back on and he returns to where he was. It's a beautiful picture of the cross. That's what God is like. Wash one another's feet. Let's pray.